Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 279 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed. And producer Jeremy's out of commission at the moment, but you know, he's always here in spirit and after the fact. But we are, um, however, in, in his place, we've got two fantastic guest who I'm very excited to be joined by um, Tamara Knopper and Eve Zellickson um, from Data and Society coming to us to talk about just a fantastic uh, primer, report, whatever it is you want to call it, um, that they have written for Data and Society um, just very recently called Wellness Capitalism, Employee Health, the Benefits Maze, and Worker Control. And for, for listeners of TMK, you know this is a topic near and dear to my heart because this is one that intersects very um, intimately with insurance, with developments in insurance, the political economy of insurance and the kind of rising approaches around digital and behavioral insurance, which um, is very much part of these like employee uh, wellness programs, these uh, insurer wellness programs. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it. And this report um, is just just I think one of the best pieces I've I've read about it, to be honest. So um Eve, Tamara, thank you so much for coming on. Wow. Thank you. That's very nice. I mean, thank you for the invitation, but that's also good for you to say. <laughs> well, it's it's a topic that it's one, it's an extremely good uh piece. And I think anybody who is even somewhat curious about like where all of this employee wellness stuff is coming from, which is very much booming right now. Because um, the the article really, and we'll get into it, but sets that historical context, the legal context, and that kind of broader political economic context of like, these things didn't just emerge out of nowhere. Um, they didn't come out of the goodness of our boss's hearts, for example. Uh, but but it's a really great piece, but you are also um, on a somewhat... Uh, uh, uncrowded playing field here as well because it's a, it's an art it's a topic that has just been so ignored. Um, there's been there's so little actual critical rigorous research that takes these things as an object worth studying rather than just something that uh, is just assumed as part of the landscape of work or something or, or of insurance or whatever and so um that, that that is also why i think it's not only good but it's like really necessary because i i i want to i think more people need to really know um about how these things work so maybe could you set the scene a little bit and say like why was this a topic that you wanted to spend so much time researching reading and writing about in the first place when so many other people have never thought to do that yeah, I can start. And then Tamara, you can say how you came to the topic. But for me, it was actually pretty direct because <clears throat> about five or six years ago, I worked for one of these health and wellness benefits companies. And I was, they did a lot of like, it was a lot of like kind of learning. It was for LGBTQ plus employees and they did a lot of good work. And I feel, you know, great about some of the work I did. But I also was just like, wow, this space is so confusing. And if it's confusing for me, someone who works at these companies and has all of these documents about all of the other vendors that an employee may or may not want to go to for X, Y, or Z ailment or condition or to lower their blood, whatever it is, then it's going to be really confusing to a worker. And so I feel like just working at one of these health, um, health and wellness 
benefits startups was like, oh my gosh, this place is very complex. All of the like terms of service, again, this isn't specific to that space, but very convoluted, very opaque, like camouflage data practices. You don't know where anything's going. And so it was after that that I was like, we need to demystify this. Um, and that's kind of how I came to the topic. So uh, thank you. I, I came to the topic because um, right now I'm a senior researcher at Data and Society, which is just a temporary position. I'm actually on leave from being a sociology professor. And I was asked to do something of my choice, which is really an exciting opportunity that had to do something with employee benefits. And so um, at first I was thinking about doing mental health apps, which is part of kind of this conversation. But then I really started thinking about kind of these fitness initiatives, partly because I like to work out. And um, and I was also thinking a lot about like the self-care discourse. Um, you know, the self-care discourse has kind of taken over a lot of different spaces, um, some of them being like corporate marketing, but also spaces that I value, such as organizing spaces, um, thinking about also how people negotiate kind of labor politics and burnout. And so for me, um, I was feeling a bit salty about some of the critiques of self-care and, you know, people kind of uh, sometimes um, making commentary about like yoga or you're doing your yoga or something like that. And I was like, well, I think yoga is important, even if I hate it. I was, I really actually kind of wanted to do a project that met the expectations of my fellowship but also that was frankly going to kind of push me to have to deal with my own shit in terms of how I thought about these things kind of emotionally and intellectually. Um, and so thinking about kind of wellness culture uh, was actually part of that. And then in the course of it, and I'll, and I'll just say, you know, you were very generous, Jathan, at the beginning, um, kind of talking about uh, the significance of our primer. And I really appreciate that, but um, there is a, an established literature um, in the scholarship of uh, people that um, we draw from who are thinking about employee wellness culture. So that was actually kind of a challenge too intellectually. It was to kind of say, where does our work fit into that? Uh, and, uh, you know, what kind of would make our work distinct? But also, this is the exciting thing about a primer versus a report at Data and Society, as I learned, um, is that a primer for Data and Society is more of kind of an overview of a big conversation and framing kind of maybe some of the political stakes or the kind of stakes for researchers. And so that was an exciting challenge for, um, I think, us to consider in that, um, you know, we have the critiques of wellness culture, we have the critiques of the neoliberalism, we're thinking about data extraction and worker control, which are all topics that have been well kind of covered in some of the scholarship. So the focus, and I'm sure we'll get into this in the podcast, the focus about kind of um, how this is really about the privatization of public health, that kind of emerged more organically through the course of the research and through kind of the different things that was being that were being read. But it also was a way to kind of think about our place in the conversation, I think, too, and what kind of distinguishes our work, because the public health angles talked about in different ways in terms of the Affordable Care Act and stuff, as I'm sure we'll talk about but it doesn't get pronounced as kind of that this is really what's going on politically beyond even the sites of employment or even beyond just thinking about its impact on workers. So I would be able to talk about, you know, maybe, you know, the, the origins or the structure of this industry, this wellness 
industry and how it came to arise? You know, why is it that we have a pretty, you know, complex and expansive healthcare welfare uh, wellness system? And, you know, what, when did that emerge? And if, you know, the research also you know, sheds light on that, you know, why is it that even in other countries that also have, you know, somewhat privatized uh, healthcare systems or, you know, some privatization, they don't seem to have the same sort of uh, wellness infrastructure, or maybe they do. And if they do, why? So, you know, part of, I think um, there's a couple things is our primer was trying to historicize some of the more recent developments, but there's a, a much longer history of kind of wellness culture actually being promoted by, you know, U.S. public health institutions. And so there's a lot of stuff that didn't make its way into the primer, but um, historically, you know, when the U.S. public health system starts emerging and they kind of have these clinics and so forth in the progressive era, there was this push to kind of promote wellness education and kind of so-called wellness behaviors. And part of the long history of kind of wellness culture is these kind of competing medical models about how to deal with kind of social health and society's health. We don't get too much into some of that stuff, but part of the debate about the medical models is, should we focus on kind of treatment of an existing issue or should we try to focus more on prevention? And that really becomes kind of a bigger conversation um, in global health. So when you're asking about kind of um, what does this mean globally, I'm not an expert on wellness culture or wellness programs worldwide, but there is a push in like the 1950s to kind of start thinking about um, health differently than just kind of the treatment of an existing situation, but more of the prevention of disease. And so you see that kind of zeitgeist about preventative care from everything that can be, you know, you can have kind of conservatives promoting that um, through maybe like, you know, or through a neoliberal model. But you also have some of the preventative care zeitgeist and existing things like structural determinants of health, which is more of a social justice model for some people about thinking about what are the kind of structural institutional environmental factors around health. But all this to say there is this kind of cultural shift. And I think one of the things I like about our primer is even though we didn't, you know, um, spend a ton of time on it, we did try to think about kind of the cultural environment of that. But the current model of wellness is in um, the environment of a changing landscape regarding healthcare and regarding medical debt and regarding kind of um, debates about access to kind of healthcare systems. And you know, this is something where it's this is where I think we have to historicize the shifting conversation about preventative care and wellness because historically you didn't have kind of these conversations about how much money was being spent on, you know, healthcare um, and about the, you know, state of healthcare policy to the extent that we do now. And it's in that environment, that political environment around concerns about medical debt and healthcare policy and healthcare costs that you see kind of wellness culture really be able to kind of, you know, um, advance in a particular way and do so very openly saying, you know, oh, you're spending so much money. Look how much money you're spending. People are getting sick. So there's all this kind of acknowledgement of like the misery and of the problems and of the money and the debt. 
But this opens up the space in a lot of ways for people to kind of, you know, promote wellness culture as like a fiscal solution in some ways. And that was something that I think we were trying to get at a lot in our primer. Yeah. I think also just like another thing we talk about is looking back to kind of in the history of employers just providing benefits to employees, right? Which like during the second half of the 19th century, the U.S. economy is kind of transitioning to from farming to more industrial forms of labor. And at the time, there was not kind of a comprehensive, there weren't comprehensive social programs, right, that workers could take advantage of. And so the employer started providing some of these services. And again, they weren't just health and wellness services. They were like job training, housing assistance, childcare, like lunches, all sorts of things. And this is, well, welfare capitalism. Um, but it also kind of as some of the this one historian Dale Mossy we pull we drew on a lot of her work, but it's also a form of control, right? You know, it's it's a way to control workers and kind of quell any sentiments of dissent. Um, and this was also a time when these a lot of industries had really high turnover, so it was kind of a way to address that as well. And that kind of persisted, I believe, until like the economy collapsed in the Great Depression, and then as Tamara men mentioned, with kind of the New Deal and the creation of like a welfare system and social services, right? Workers no longer necessarily needed to turn to their employer for those benefits. Um, and you also see kind of the the growing strength of like organized labor um, because there are stronger labor protections with the passage of the National Labor Relations Act and the NLRB. Um, and so kind of workers are also coming to see this as, again, some of these benefits as kind of paternalistic or a form of control. They kind of resurfaced again in the 1970s mm -hmm. Yeah, Nixon. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I think um, part of also, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about with the, like the critiques of self-care, right? Because, um, you know, if we go back to kind of what uh, compelled me to want to explore this is, you know, working on this primer has been really helpful for me to think through a lot of the contemporary politics um, that I'm seeing in various spaces that are, again, meaningful to me. So, you know, right now there's this whole kind of focus on things like healing. There's a lot of focus, a focus on like um, trauma. Um, there's more public conversations about mental health. And there's a lot of political debate, uh, especially, I think, in progressive and leftist spaces about how kind of useful are some of these things or if these are forms of neoliberalism or if they're highly individualistic and so forth. Right. And, you know, we also hear the term care a lot. And, and this includes in kind of spaces that deal with the criminal punishment system or calling for defund the police or abolition. And the reason I bring this up is that part of the history of employee wellness programs you know, um, uh, comes from employee assistance programs. And one of the things that I like about our primer is that we took the time to kind of sort out some of the distinctions between an employee assistance program and an employee wellness program, because they're often kind of, they operate a little bit differently, even though they also operate together, but the scholarship is also very different about them. So employee assistance programs um, you know, were about kind of companies dealing with, you know, what were seen as so-called private problems among individuals and their families and providing kind of different uh, forms of support or organizational culture to try to deal with it. So part of the history, for example, of employee assistance programs is actually Alcoholics Anonymous. And part of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous is 
this effort to kind of destigmatize alcoholism, um, to say this is really impacting people um, and and can impact society. So that's actually very powerful. And there are a lot of people who see, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and being able to be public, right? You see this on social media where people say, um, and they might not necessarily be a member of AA, but they'll say publicly, you know, it's been two years since I've gotten sober and so forth. And the reason I bring this up is that even as we talk a lot about the critiques of kind of wellness culture, some of the the history of it comes from this kind of um, effort to say we shouldn't have to hide sometimes the things that we're struggling with, whether it's kind of physically or emotionally or in terms of addictions. And so finally, you know, Eve's probably like, what's this got to do with the 1970s? Well, Eve already knows since we've worked on many drafts together, right? So, but, um, you know, in the 1970s, uh, there's this push in the federal government to kind of recognize addictions more in terms of alcoholism, um, but also uh, in the federal government's role. Now, that's with Lyndon Johnson, but also uh, Richard Nixon. Now, part of the issue, as we know, is that even though, you know, Lyndon Johnson was somebody who was associated with kind of the great society programs and the expansion of the social welfare state, and Richard Nixon was a Republican, both of them are very much associated with the expansion of carcerality and of the role of the federal government in being extremely punitive. And um, Elizabeth Hinton, for example, has talked about, um, she's written a lot of important scholarship about um, the merging of anti-poverty programs and great society programs with the carceral state, right? So one is I don't want to overstep and suggest that, you know, there wasn't all these negative forms of surveillance or worker control that could be associated with that. But it's in 1970s that um, employee assistance programs, some of them which had already been in operation in these company towns that Eve was talking about uh, during, you know, the early 20th century, Employee assistance programs become more formalized in, under the federal government, and you start to kind of see them proliferating um, at, at jobs, right? Employee wellness programs, they tend to deal more with kind of medical and mental health and kind of preventative care um, uh, issues and disease, right? Even though there's other programs that have emerged um, under the guise of wellness, right? But this is something that I think is important. And so, Jatham, when you were talking about some of the scholarship earlier, uh, if you look at kind of employee assistance programs, they tend to get treated differently in the scholarship. They tend to be kind of the focus of a lot of HR, human resource, and kind of benefits providers and, um, and so forth. Employee wellness programs, it's often the term that gets used or sometimes corporate wellness programs by the scholars who are a bit more critical of kind of the wellness culture being imposed on workers and who are thinking more about issues around worker control and surveillance and data extraction. So, Yeah. I mean, all of this is such good, good context and, and drawing those things together, showing that these are, while they're like different terms and they tend to be treated differently, they are intimately connected with each other. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, there are, there is definitely a lot of really great work on this, especially around the kind of critiques of wellness culture and things like that. But I think the, the thing that is of the overriding focus is that cultural analysis and cultural critique um, of wellness, right? And 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 a lot of times it is what's absent from that is 
um, I maybe completely, or at least as a as a focus, is drawing out these larger political and economic questions about like what does this mean for the structure of healthcare in in a society? What does this mean about who's responsible for providing healthcare um, and and these kinds of preventative uh, care practices? And also, what's the goal of it? Right? I think that's something that is also really crucial here. Like the the we can't equivocate across different means and methods if they have radically different goals in mind. Um, You know, if the goal is to uh, make people healthier and better in, you know, some way where they, they have a healthier life, they're happier, you know, all these kinds of things that are uh, marked that that tend to be the language around like who could disagree that we want people to like have access to, yoga classes and healthy eating programs and um, and all of this to be subsidized or free. Um, we want people to have, you know, access to therapist or um, cognitive behavioral uh, tr- therapy or something like that, right? Like we, uh, who, who could disagree? All of this is, of course, really good. And hey, if your boss is the one providing it, well, you know, we're a big family here. And so, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's that, as you say, it's the win-win, right? That like everybody wins in this. But um, I think as, as we go through, what is really clear is that some people win a lot more than other people. And some people are get to define what winning means for other people, right? And so, you know, in reality, if you have a system that is a, that is organized around employee assistance um, or employee wellness, but you know it's it's done so to um, prevent absenteeism or presentism as as you know or uh, to uh, increase productivity, to reduce turnover, to shackle to make people feel as if they are shackled or somehow tied to their jobs um, because if they're not, then they don't have access to um, to healthcare or to wellness programs. Then as you say, like it, it becomes this tool of worker control. It becomes driven by um, economic motives, not necessarily health motives, public or personal. And so you get radically different types of programs there. And, and I think one of the distinctions as well between that employee assistance programs and the employee wellness programs is the framing around it. Like you start the primer with, you know, um, talk with talking about Henry Ford, right? And this is the very, very famous kind of, you know, Ford had, you know, social workers on staff who acted more like morality police. You know, they would show up at workers' homes, do inspections, uh, you know, question, interview. You know, it's so, you know, famously Ford is, you know, associated with people who work at Ford should be able to buy a Ford car, right? This idea that like the workers should be able to buy the product. And this becomes a way of creating a mass market for these mass produced commodities. But it wasn't just anybody who could buy a Ford car. If you were a Ford factory employee, you had to be vetted and judged and assessed to be worthy of owning a Ford car, which meant having these social workers come to your home, inspect your home, question your family, see, are you a good moral Christian? Um, you know, and, and so this is the, this is the employee assistance program, right? This is the, it, it often has an AA as well 
was very Christian, very God focused, very religious focused. And so that employee assistance program as this kind of like a uh, Christian morality baked into it. And I think we can see a, a relationship here, but more of a kind of secular evolution into the employee wellness program, which instead has more secular but still very moralizing ideas of like individual responsibility, taking charge of your life, making good choices, having good behaviors and good lifestyles. And I think we see this a lot with a lot of the um, corporate wellness programs or other forms of these uh, behavioral insurance programs tied to life and health insurance that have a a, a hyper-individualistic approach that like, health is the result of good choices, right? It's none of it is structural. None of it is about like the material conditions in which you live. It is like, are you making good choices? And we'll give you the tools to help support you to make good choices. But other, but at the end of the day, the, the result is still uh, your responsibility. Yeah, that's so well said. It's something that like if you just work at it hard enough, like you can you can fix it. Maybe we can then to to get deeper into this kind of quagmire here. And I think there is something that's really unique because there are these employee wellness programs around the world. And and this is something that I, I have written about as as well. And you know, I have some work under review on um, the Vitality Program, which is one of the world's largest um, of these behavioral insurance wellness programs tied to life and health insurance. And it was created by a company um, called Discovery, which is a South African insurer. And it's been franchised out through partnership models to essentially every major market market in the world through partnerships with major insurers that have regional dominance in Europe and China and Australasia and South America. And so, and it works in this way of like, it's very much focused on this kind of digital tracking, you know, fitness data through wearable devices apps and platforms where you can gain points by logging your healthy eating or doing regular medical checkups or other kind of like, you know, risk mitigating behavioral lifestyle factors. And you get rewarded for it through incentives and, 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 you know, perhaps premium discounts or free tickets to the movie or subsidized Apple watches. Like, so these kind of things exist globally. Um, and they're, they're increasingly popular, but there is a really unique kind of American aspect to a lot of this as well, which is that link to the employer. Um, it's not a, it's not a direct relationship with the insurer in the way it is most places around the world or, or a direct or just some kind of perk that you might get if you work at a, a nice, you know, if you work at a nice company in Europe, you might get a perk that includes some of these wellness things around like yoga classes or healthy eating stations or something like that. But but America is always at the forefront of making these things as like revanchist <laughs> as possible because it's not just the direct relationship with the insurer, it's mediated through the employer. Um, and, and it's been rapidly expanded. When I talk to people about this, I'm sure you see the same. Like a lot of people are really surprised to hear that these like employee wellness programs were such a key 
focus and rapidly expanded by the Affordable Care Act, by Obamacare, right? That this was a really kind of major aspect of the ACA. Um, the the and so could we talk more about that, like? really unique kind of legal and labor uh, conditions in the in the US that has kind of really inflected the the character of these wellness programs um, and it's linked to kind of American style welfare capitalism as well which also tends to be extremely punitive and carceral as you were talking about Tamara um, so can we talk more about like that America the American character um, of these <laughs> of these programs. Um, the ACA for sure for any listeners who aren't familiar with the the Safeway Amendment. But yeah, so ACA was passed in 2010, and as part of it, this section called the Safeway Amendment, it allowed employers to kind of adjust premiums and cost sharings in accordance with um, an employee's um, kind of participation or meeting a certain metric within a, a wellness program. And so it increased this incentive or penalty that a company is permitted to offer by 10%. So I believe it's amounting up to like 30%. Um, of premiums or cost sharing. And it's called the Safeway Amendment because there was at Safeway, which is a big U.S. um, grocery store chain, their CEO at the time was they had this wellness program where you had to meet certain health um, and wellness metrics. And the CEO was really, really vocal about how it had kept their healthcare costs down and stabilized them for four, like I think uh, four years in a row. Um, And it was really touted as this example of like, holy shit, these wellness programs are actually, you know, healthcare costs are rising so quickly. But look, like, look at, we're just, they're doing what they're supposed to be. And we've been able to stabilize our costs. Plot twist, a Washington Post reporter looked into this a few years later, and it was not not true at all. Um, But regardless, the Safeway Amendment was included in the ACA. um, And a lot of large companies kind of bought into this and started adopting employee wellness programs um, and employee assistance programs after that. So that's kind of how the ACA is involved. Thank you, Eve. You know, um, one of the things that I think is really important and that doesn't always get kind of as amplified in some of the literature on employee wellness is that it's through, you know, benefits, right? And so this is also part of the kind of, I think, it's a bigger issue is just that um, a lot of what we hope to get out of, uh, you know, kind of society, we sometimes are trying to get it through our employers. And so the most obvious thing is about kind of sometimes having access to health insurance um, at a lower cost, but it's also about just getting access to a whole range of things. So if you think about, for example, and I'm not an advocate for people enlisting in the military, but if you look at kind of enlistment, you know, uh, uh, people get paid very little to serve in the military, but they have such a huge part of kind of the social welfare state, and that becomes part of the so-called complete package that they're offered. And so part of, you know, when we think about employee wellness um, programming, as a benefit and the way that we've tied so much of kind of the way we evaluate kind of the total compensation packages being our benefits package. Well, a lot of what's going on in benefits packages are a way for for for-profit companies 
um, third-party vendors to be able to kind of have a, a somewhat of a captive market um, through through an employer to tap into and to kind of transform what should be a lot of times public services into kind of degraded services in terms of the quality and in terms of becoming a consumer product, right, instead of what should be a public good. And so this is, I think, a bigger issue because one of the things is historically, it's also about kind of our particular healthcare system here. Um, one of the things that makes the United States kind of unique in terms of um, uh, so-called advanced countries, if we want to use that developmental language, um, is that we have you know, um, the health and the health um, care that we do compared to other countries where health care is more of a public good in some way. Right. And this is not to say that they're perfect or that they're totally, you know, whatever. But but it is to say that we just have a particular health care system um, compared to so-called um, other nations that are kind of in our same peer as like so-called developed nations. And this has also played out with the labor movement. And so one of the things is historically, it was actually, you know, along with like the American Medical Association, it was actually, you know, the AFL um, who was a major opponent to FDR's proposal for what would have been national health care, right? Now, not to say that national health care is what people are championing in terms of universal health care today. There's various models of what that would look like, right? But the AFL was opposed to it. And one of the things is, is that what I would like to see in terms of some of the political conversations about, you know, unions is this kind of way that sometimes we battle over benefits. Um, and we sometimes can treat benefits as kind of an exclusive aspect of being a union member, right? And what does that mean for actually kind of unions being a vehicle, not just for their own members, but for the overall society, including non-union members and non-workers, right? And this is a bigger conversation. And so I was recently at a social science research council gathering on labor and tech, and uh, we were presenting our research and so forth, and I was talking about employee wellness programs. And um, there was another researcher there who also was a labor organizer, and they were saying some really fascinating stuff about how, by the way, Eve, they said they really liked our, our work, okay, and that, you know, it really resonated with them. <laughs> okay, so just want to pass along the good word. And one of the things they said, though, is they were talking about the amount of negotiation that happens over employee wellness stuff. And, you know, Jathan, I'm sure, you know, you doing insure tech, you know, it, it, it was very much an actuarial conversation, right? And all this kind of actuarial science. And they said that they're literally kind of bargaining as unions, you know, uh, let's calculate what, you know, um, uh, is needed for a mental health day, or let's calculate this, right? And that's something that I think um, the literature on employee wellness would benefit from is more scholarship about the unions. We talked a bit in our primer about some of the debate among the unions, right? There are some unions, we start out our store, our primer with a critique of um, employee wellness programs and, and of, of Henry Ford's, you know, company town model that you talked about. But we also talked about different unions that partner with that. But along with that is this bigger kind of question about one just kind of um, the role of employee benefits. And hey, I, I like my benefits, if, you know, if that's the only option, right? But it's like the role of employee benefits and kind of, you know, 
being part of the privatization of public goods. There's that, right? The role of employee benefits in making some public goods become kind of almost like means tested, like having to be employed is a major form of means testing, basically, right? But it's also, it becomes a way of, um, it, it takes up a lot of bargaining power and political power, right? It becomes a bargaining chip too with workers, um, the way that, you know, uh, and a lot of union members and HR people will say a lot of the bargaining is over benefits, not necessarily salaries. And it also becomes this bigger conversation if we're fighting over benefits. Um, what does that mean for the bigger kind of political struggles that um, are about not just workers, right? And, and what role can unions play in being a vehicle for like a bigger struggle? So I think that's also some of the stuff, and I'm not saying that's unique only to the United States, but I think those are some particular things about the United States in the way kind of wellness culture being tied up to employee benefits is playing out. Yeah. Jathan, I'm curious what your take is. <laughs> and especially with vitality being so global. Yeah. Or their well, products I've, being so global. Well, there's kind of two sides here, right? On, on one hand, like the this is really attractive to insurers um, because it is a way to offload a lot of the risk factors and the cost onto um onto uh policyholders and, and consumers, um, for sure, right? Like, you know, this is about risk mitigation, but also risk management. So it's kind of, it's all within that framework of risk for the, uh, from the insurer's side. And as well, I mean, you talk about like the Safeway amendment, you know, the, the idea that Safeway had this hugely successful employee wellness program that was having all these effects of keeping health costs down, which what that often means as well is, it, and it's usually framed about not keeping health costs down, but keeping health consumption down mm -hmm, or healthcare mm -hmm. consumption down. And so it treats yeah. healthcare as this commodity that is bad if people consume. Um, and so you it. need to have, you, so you need to do everything in your power to ensure that people are not consuming healthcare, um, which is a, a completely deranged way to think about healthcare, but it is how the insurers and how the employers think about it. Um, so, but you mentioned like all of that kind of uh, stuff around the Safeway Amendment is completely bunk, right? That it, like you know that that it wasn't doing what the CEO of Safeway claimed it was doing. Well, there's a lot. There's a number of uh, there's research on the insurance side of things um, for these behavioral insurance programs that also claim to be like. Uh, positively modifying and changing people's behavior, not just uh, more accurately um, pricing behavior, which is a big part of it. And this is where a lot of the like digital technology and the use of like machine learning or, or you know, sucking up as much behavioral data as possible so that you can more like accurately price people according to their, their real risk factors and their real risk behaviors, not just in these broad like demographic um, kind of ways. So more personalized pricing. That's a, like there's a lot of that kind of debate around it, but also like vitality is especially is on the forefront of claiming that it is not just about like more accurate behavioral uh, data analysis, but also a, a powerful tool for modifying and changing people's behaviors, for making people less risky, more healthy, and thus more profitable. Uh, in sure, you know, uh, but but. 
that is there's there's almost no evidence for that. All of the evidence that exists is evidence created or funded by Vitality, right? Uh, or commissioned by them. Um, and so, like the Rand Corporation has put out um, at least two major reports about this using data from Vitality Insurance members and and all of that. Mm-hmm. These, but these mm-hmm. reports were commissioned by Vitality, right? And and so yeah. like. And I talk to people. I talk to professional actuaries, like you know, uh, you know, underwriters, actuarial consultants, people who have worked on these kinds of behavioral products. And everybody I've ever talked to who's not like directly employed uh, by one of these companies um, says that it's like a marketing gimmick, right? Like, like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a market differentiation product. It's a way to differentiate yourself in the market of these kinds of life and health insurance products. Um, but like the, the claims around their like actuarial effectiveness for risk mitigation and risk management is like, like there's no independent research. Most, most people I talk to, like I said, the the word they have used is gimmick. Uh, And and so, but it doesn't like take away the power of these things as well. Um, For insurers, I think the power is a, it is very similar to what it is doing with employers. So outside of like an employee wellness context, um, with uh, insurers, these behavioral life pro, uh, uh, policies are, are, I think, more about like preferred underwriting. They're about attracting people like Tamara, who are like really focused on exercise and eating well, and like they really already are doing these things. Um, and so then you can capture them. So you're not actually changing behavior. You're just capturing the cream of the cr- of, off the top of the market, right? Um, and so that's more profitable for you because you're skimming the, the, the good risk off the top of the whole mass of bad risk, um, you know? And so it's about, it's that. So it's, again, it's a, it's a, it's a way of marketing. You market a product to get a specific audience or consumer segment. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of it is right now with that. But the thing that makes the employer aspect benefit and your primer really nails this, uh, is that like, I think it's a question of, uh, of like, uh, how effective they can be because they're able to be a lot more punitive as well. So like with the behavioral insurance programs where it's not directly tied to your employer, um, there is a kind of, there, there can be a punitive aspect, but a lot of times it's more about this like complex system of carrots rather than sticks. Um, because like there's also regulations in a lot of jurisdictions around, um, reducing people's premiums for these things, uh, for like not meeting, um, exercise goals, for example, like you're not able to do that in a lot of jurisdictions around the world because of insurance law. The U S is unique in that regard. And, uh, and there are uh, uh, some other, like the UK is also a place where you can actually directly impact people's premiums. The industry euphemism I've heard is it's a negative discount, um, which, oh my God. which means it's a decrease, <laughs> but they call it a, but they just call it a negative discount, negative discount. Um, on your premium, which means it's an increase on your premiums. <laughs> um, that's because, evil. Yeah. Because they don't, because they want to talk about it in the language of discounts, um, and the language of carrots, incentives, rewards, your know, points, these kinds of things. And so I think that also like limits, 
because people can just jump ship. They don't, they're not required to necessarily use these products. In fact, uh, there's uh, research in Europe on these behavioral insurance products or, or behavioral wellness products that say a lot of people don't even realize that their insurance policy has a behavioral kind of factor to it because they just don't engage with that. Um, but the thing that I think makes the U.S. and the American character of it really unique is that idea that you both were talking about around this as a captured um, audience that like you are tied to this through your employer. It's part of the like the material conditions of your life. It's not just a choice that you make. It is like you have to navigate this, as you call it very aptly, the benefits maze. You can be directly punished. You have this you know, whole section around the kind of the punitive aspect of this as well, where it might be voluntary. And I would love for you to actually, both of you to talk more about this, like talk more about this like idea that these things are voluntary, but they're not really voluntary when they have such, like you were talking about the the, the discount, you know, 10% to 30%. Well, if you're a family of four and your health insurance can be discounted by 20 or 30%, if you are a active, engaged member of the wellness program, which can require a lot of time and effort and energy on your part to meet the kind of like owner's thresholds and goals um, that some of these programs require. But if that means a reduction of 20% on your premiums, that can in real terms mean thousands and thousands of dollars uh, a year in premium discounts. And suddenly that carrot starts looking a lot like a stick, but it's framed like a carrot, right? So can you talk about this like real kind of captured quote unquote voluntary aspect of, of these programs be, uh, through their, their tie with employers. One thing I want to say really quickly before I forget, and then I feel like Tamara, you're in a better position to answer this question, but is it's the same with when you were talking about how there aren't like the, the evidence that does exist for cost savings or like behavioral shifts is from these companies themselves. It's the exact same in the health and wellness industry. Like well, there's very, very little, I mean, there's almost, there's no like independent research on like return on investments. And the research that is, that does exist again, is like companies themselves touting the numbers that they've saved by, you know, X amount of employees using their services. And so it's the same thing. And it's also like for a lot of these health and wellness companies, I think it's, they see it as an excuse as well to collect more data from people. Um, like we need this information from you because we've promised your employer that, you know, we're going to tell you how much we're saving them. Uh, so I think that logic is also like really strongly in all of these kind of marketing and the actual way they design these systems and what data they ask for and how they share it. And just real quick on that, because I saw this from something I think you tweeted Eve that like and and you know Deloitte recently came out with a report like pushing for mandatory wellness metric uh, collection and reporting by by uh, employers and they surveyed a bunch of like CEOs and they're you know saying the vast majority of CEOs we surveyed are in favor of this like mandatory collection and reporting of metric data and I will say that like this is not coming out of nowhere either um, 
vitality, this uh, this global kind of product, um, they had a vit- I, they call it the Vitality Institute, and it's it's based in the U.S. and they had they had been putting out reports I've seen since at least 2014 arguing for this exact kind of mandatory uh, wellness metric reporting. And so like this, the, this has been going on for at least a decade. I, I, I think even longer in terms of like uh, the, the, the industry pushing towards making this like a mandatory form of data collection, essentially, right? That like we need to have this data on employees because it's for their own good, you know, their own benefit. So I, I just want to say, I was going to ask Edward, since, you know, you're a, a labor reporter, and you've done a lot of work with talking to workers and labor organizations. I was just curious if, um, have they read our primer? No, I'm totally kidding. That's not the question, but it's like, I'm totally playing. Um, the question is, um, is uh, have you heard people talking about kind of health and wellness benefits or just even a critique of benefits culture and so forth in terms of their labor battles at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think one of the more like the bright shining stars, um, you know, we can think of in this example is Amazon, right. And, you know, a job, which, you know, the very premise of Amazon is like, well, you know, we have more or less decided that we have calculated what the churn is going to be. We've, we have a good sense of what the environmental impact of these jobs are going to be, what the mental health impact of the jobs are going to be, what the physical impact of the jobs are going to be. Um, so we have the churn to burn through the people, which also works as like a pretty good, you know, anti-union organizing incentive. And then we have like a good amount of uh, benefits and well, not a good amount, but we have, you know, this sort of like you know, wellness program offering that feels when you say it out loud even more orwellian you know than a lot of other programs um <laughs> but is offered with a serious face i mean like the, you know amazon for example has this um you know one of the first wellness programs of theirs i came across was a brochure that they had which would basically just like give you suggestions on how to um you know make sure you're going about your day without injury right and it would be like well you know, if you're feeling injured, make sure to go to sleep with like, you know, a bag of ice wrapped around your torso or make sure to like buy heavy duty, you know, shoes and insoles that would help you out. And and then when you come into work, we have the Zen or meditation or mindfulness program where you stand in a booth, literally, you know, one of these, one of these booths and, you know, for five or 10 minutes or maybe- during that long break they give you. <laughs> yeah, right. Also, yeah. So I think Amazon was a very interesting example because, right, because they don't, they specifically don't give you breaks and the breaks that they do can be used against you to fire you at one way or another, demerit you or, you know, be a, be a lodge against your productivity. Amazon is particularly um, interesting, right? Because this is a firm that understands to a granular degree how much it can squeeze out of each worker offers these wellness programs, um, which are, you know, usually PR nightmares and, <laughs> and more and, and, and such a small cost as kind of doesn't make sense for them to offer them in the first place. 
But part of me, you know, wonders, and this is something I wanted to ask you guys about, like, I'm also very curious about, you know, like, to what extent do people in this industry actually believe in the things that are being offered here, right? Because, you know, at the beginning of your primer, you talk about how, you know, in the 1970s, this is enmeshed in a shift and a desire to say there are illnesses, there are disorders that should be medical issues and not moral issues, but that they can't escape the market logic and the desire for corporate productivity and profit. And I wonder, at times, at times it feels like if these people saw what the system became now, they'd be horrified. But then also at the same time, if they were taken along at each step, they would more or less be fine with it. And so maybe with you know, when I'm thinking through Amazon and thinking about how weird of an example it is, I'm curious, like, you know, do you see, do you think, or does the political economy of like how data is used, how how digitizing services are used strike you as offering any insight into this is why they offer that service, not just because they like it's a, a, you know, maybe a, a crumb that they can give away, but because on some level they really do believe that these sorts of tips and these sorts of steps work? Or is it just like there's, there's just this massive edifice and structure behind it that incentivizes it and it doesn't really particularly matter with, with any individual firm, executive, um, you know, organization thinks or desires? I would say, and again, this is personal opinion, but I mean, I think because it's such a massive and growing industry, like, I think it depends. I think there are some benefits that are really nothing. They're like a breathing app and given to an Amazon worker, right? That's not helpful at all. But I do think there are some that offer like more substantive services. And I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, I'd really, and Tamara, I'm sure agrees, like would like to see research more is like what do workers actually think about these benefits and which ones are useful and which ones are not and in what ways are they useful. And I think it's also just because like you truly can name any condition and like there's some sort of app for it. Um, And it's also hard because like a lot of these they're trying to like a lot of them are startups. They're trying to raise a lot of VC money or, you know, and get people excited. And so they're hyping up these like nascent tech tech innovations. And like, sometimes those are true and exist. Um, and you know, again, it's a question of that probably they shouldn't be using them or not, but then other times it's like, Oh, it's kind of a front. Right. And there's actually real care coordinators who do really care about helping the people that they're working that the the, like employers that, you know, they get in contact with and helping them find like a good top surgeon or find a good therapist. And so I think it's too diverse of an industry to like say definitively one way or the other. Um, but I do think, yeah, the marketing is like a, a huge issue and it, and that's kind of one of the things we ran into as well is like, it's hard to cut through that marketing shit and understand what that product actually is and like how truthful, you know, they're being, if they say they have an AI therapist, like what the hell does that mean? I think there are some people who are probably true believers. I think, you know, one of the things is, is that, and this goes back to kind of what even Jathan were talking about in terms of the studies that have been done and kind of the returns on investment. So there are, you know, sometimes they'll do interviews with kind of executives and it'll be like, 
or they'll do a survey, excuse me. A lot of times it's more surveys than interviews in a lot of the data. Um, and that can be both kind of industry reports or market research reports, but also there is actually, um, you know, especially in some of the kind of HR and benefits management work, there are kind of studies about returns on investments and so forth. And they, you'll see executives kind of talking about, um, but the focus will tend to be on like, implementing the programs at their companies and what have been some of the difficulties of getting workers involved. So sometimes it'll be like a case study about, you know, why did workers not get involved or where they think was the most effective way to get them involved. Those studies a lot of times don't deal with a lot of these issues around worker control or data extraction. And they don't tend to ask a lot of questions about like, how did you relate to concerns about privacy or about how this data might be used against workers? But you do have some executives, you know, in some of these reports, and again, some of these will be kind of like industry reports, or it might be like, you know, organizations that monitor kind of employee wellness, which is its own culture, right? There's a lot of kind of civic organizations and like um, organizations that monitor organizations and companies, right, that produce all this stuff. And there's also a whole benefits industry and benefits managers that are kind of monitoring these things, partly because it benefits benefits managers. It gives them another task that says, you know, um, interpreting ACA, interpreting privacy guidelines, interpreting HIPAA, um, you know, uh, you need someone who's a specialist at your job and in your HR department who does that. So you have entire industries that are also kind of pro-employee wellness programs um, that aren't necessarily these for-profit vendors, but they they make money off of kind of this belief in it, right? That's part of also who gets caught up in the women. But you do have, I think, some people who probably genuinely believe it. I think the issue becomes, because, and this goes to what Eve was saying, you know, cutting between kind of what is a marketing campaign, right? You know, you're not going to say like this doesn't work or you're not going to say, you know, um, or whatever. So you're going to promote it as something that works. And you have so many different institutional actors who are promoting this win-win narrative, whether it's like the CDC or it could be a benefits uh, managers like, you know, business association to the third-party vendor who's marketing their services, they're all kind of on board, you know? Um, what I will say also about the return on investment thing really quickly is that there are some scholars who have uh, looked at it and not necessarily using kind of industry data. So if you look at, for example, like Damon Jones at the University of Chicago, he's an economist. He, he's done studies. Um, the difficulty with kind of sometimes the return on investment research is that Employee wellness programs, employee assistance programs are not required. Uh, employees are not required to offer them, and then they can design them in any way they want. So what might be offered at one employee by one employer might not necessarily be offered by another employer. And this is why, you know, when Eve and I talked about the benefits maze, we talked about kind of different uh, actors like, you know, the um, point solution or the benefits manager and so forth to kind of say these might be kind of entities that you might encounter or that might be involved that you might not even realize in the kind of maze that you're dealing with. But we didn't try to kind of say it's a universal maze. And that's also part of the difficulty is that sometimes just saying like, what is the return on investment? It can differ based upon how a program is designed. But also this gets at, I think, you know, Jathan, I've been reading slowly yet surely your newest insure tech article and um 
you know, Eve, I told Jathan that I started reading it when I was doing wall sits at the gym, just because I was like, in pain sitting there. And I was like, let me just look at my phone and read about InsurTech and that might help me. Um, <laughs> I actually got through a decent amount of it. And then I was reading it again the other day while I was on the elliptic. And one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about the section about like continuous interaction, and that obviously overlaps with what um, employee wellness stuff does and just kind of the app culture and the, you know, um, and so forth is this idea of like kind of continuous interaction in terms of talking about your wellness or reporting wellness metrics. But I thought about it and I was like, you know, some of the stuff, at least with the insurance stuff um, that you're dealing with is I thought, you know, some of it's just busy work. It gives this idea that like these companies are giving you something um, that it's like you get these services that you're kind of, you know, whatever. But in the end, a lot of these companies are just going to decide if they're going to deny your claim or not. Do you you mean? Right. And so and they often will have very contradictory information or they will, you know, not always explain themselves well, or they kind of expect you to kind of just tire out from trying to deal with, you know, getting an answer about why your claim was denied. Right. And and in some ways, you know, I think that is a bigger question about what is the financial impact of these programs? So you do have some research that will say, oh, the return on investment shows that does reduce sometimes employee wellness cost, right? Well, it might be something that's already structured into the program if part of it's like, hey, get so many employees to do this and everybody gets a discount on something, right? But is it a huge amount? That's not something that has been really like, I think more research needs to be dealt with um, about that. Because this is something I've been thinking about is like, um, and maybe this makes me a, a bad Marxist. And again, you know, I'm using the term Marxism crudely here, but I think a lot of times people assume that all these decisions are about like making money, Right. And, um, you know, Jathan, I read I read part of your bio on um, it was like an essay. It was lovely. Right. And and you said that part of the reason why you deal with data and tech is you said to really think about power. Right. And one of the things I've been thinking about with employee wellness programs is it, it's kind of a mixed bag on whether or not it actually saves employees money. And there's not always kind of, you know, strong evidence that overwhelmingly does or whatever. Right. And so it becomes this question about like, what is the function politically of these programs if it doesn't necessarily save uh, employers money or if it isn't totally clear how it does. Right. And some of these employers themselves uh, in some of these studies have said, you know, oh, we plan on implementing these programs, but they haven't always talked about like, you know, they're, they're still even saying like, we're not totally sure like how it's really kind of, you know, uh, revolutionize things that are as employers for us. Right. But it does raise these interesting questions about what might be other kind of political motivations beyond just like making money. And I think that is something where if we think about the restructuring of kind of, you know, um, public goods and neoliberalism in the social welfare state, that isn't always about necessarily saving money, even though we're told it is, right? It's also about just kind of restructuring the state and restructuring kind of what is, you know, um, the role, increasing the role of the employer and so forth. You know what I mean? It's a whole bunch of other political things I think are there. Um, and I don't have the answer um, so this is where I'm going to say I have more questions than answers because that always sounds really smart. But but I think that that is something I'm open to thinking about is that I, I don't necessarily need to always think about it as like, oh, it's being driven by profits, because I think that was part of what people assumed. Sometimes when we were kind of engaging, getting feedback, it was like, oh, this is always profit driven. But I don't know if um, employee wellness culture kind of being implemented to the degree it is, is necessarily always 
profit driven. No, I think that's exactly right because it's, it's like even the 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 valorization of this, right? This somehow turning this data collection or these platforms or programs into monetary value um, is very rarely a, a, a direct exchange, right? That you can like witness and observe, right? Like that valorization happens maybe somewhere down the line in some way that you don't expect or you don't know, or they don't expect or they don't know, right? Like, you know, it, it's an idea that like, Val- like value will come uh, if you keep collecting the data, if you keep pushing the programs and things like that. And I think you're exactly right that like power is the thing here that is often missing in more vulgar analyses that are so focused on um, the like finding that direct uh, event, that profit event where something where something happens to turn a profit. Like it, you have to like th- part of thinking about the power is, um, thinking about like how this establishes certain power relationships and power dynamics. And I think you're, you're the, the primer does a really fantastic job of this because part of the like benefits maze here. And I think it's some, there, there's something you said earlier, Tamara, that I think was really, really dead on was this battle over benefits, right? That like the, the, the hyper-focus on benefits becomes this like dangling keys that distracts you from talking about things like, you know, salaries, right? So don't talk about money. That's gauche, right? We're going to talk about benefits. Um, but also don't talk about like structural and foundational aspects of the like labor uh, employer relationship, right? Like we're going to talk about like benefits. And so you kind of had this like this battling around the edges of benefits. And it does become um, a point where like uh, a lot of attention and energy gets sucked into it from the unions, from um, activists, right? I think it's a lot of the same kind of type of relationship that we see with technology and with critiques of technology as well, which fundamentally like never question the technology, but question the like the things around the tech, the ethics of the technology, right? Like, is it biased or not? Is it like equitable and inclusive or not? Um, Rather than being like, should this technology exist? Uh, You know, should it should it have no right to exist? Is there something like really structural and fundamental to like the system that created this technology, which is a problem? And I think benefits do a lot of the same kind of work, but for labor uh, and the, the labor relation, not not you know, and, and and so I think that battle of benefits is great, and I I I, I see this all the time um, for sure, and it it uh, it does suck up a lot of energy. But that's that is about profit, but in a really indirect way, because I think you're right, Tamara. It's about power. It's about like, and it's about creating conditions, like economic conditions, material conditions, such that like uh, profit can continue and expand such that like existing power relationships can continue and expand, right? It's about creating a condition of profit making, not creating profit in and of itself at that exact moment in time. Um, and like we're, you know, on the, on our Patreon feed, we're doing a, a book club on mute compulsion, um, a new book by, uh, Soren Mao, which is laying out, um, a, a, a theory of economic power, 
um, a, a kind of Marxist theory of economic power, um, which is also something that, and I think this the book does really well at arguing that like, our cons- even for Marxists, our conception of power tends to be either like, ideological or violence, right? Like it's an ideological power that you just kind of, you're buying into wellness, for example, right? That like, you know, uh, you, 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 you have a false consciousness about like, about wellness and, or like a violent power, right? Like you are being forced to do this, right? Like the employer has you at the, at the, at the barrel of a gun. Um, and they're saying like, this is what you have to do if you want a job. And some of those things are absolutely part of it, right? Like that's the kind of like the cultural critique of it. That's the like more kind of labor critique of it. But like this, book is really laying out that their power operates as well in a much more conditional way. It creates an economic condition such that like social reproduction has to happen in and through capital. Right. And like, so this is like, this is, I think the really key way of understanding these employee wellness programs, these insurance programs is it's about creating an economic condition, a power relationship such that your life has to happen through the market, through capital. Um, And that doesn't mean that like it's a direct, again, it's not that direct like profit event, but it's creating a whole structure such that like profit and power in favor of capital can continue to happen. And I, I, I think, and that's the benefits maze, right? You get trapped in the benefit maze, not necessarily because it like is directly profitable for an employer or an insurer at that moment, but because it's generally very good for them for you to be captured in the benefit maze, because it like, as you go, you know, worker control is a major theme of your, of your article. It's a way of disempowering you, taking away some of that control, taking away some of that choice, making you dependent on capital for social reproduction in new and deeper and more intimate kinds of ways right and then and then later on down the line that creates conditions for profit making um, for power grabbing and things like that by by capital i mean i think this is why it's like it's difficult to critique these things because they do require us to think in like multiple levels of abstraction like it's hard to like i think if you just have if you want to have that like really like that immediate analysis it lends itself to uh kind of cultural critiques or things like that that are like yeah that's fine but it's like kind of missing um the broad the broader point the bigger point of like what this is actually doing it's not making more profit for safeway uh it's not like you know it's not that it's it, it it's not that like doing yoga is bad or anything like that it's like no it like what kind of <laughs> So, yeah, it may suck, but it doesn't mean it's bad for you. And I think that's the that's also part of the like um, and, and you wrestle with this in the article where it's like that's part of the difficulty here, because it's like some of this thing stuff is actually really good for you. It is good to exercise. It is good to have access to healthy food. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it, it's great if you can get it. Um, but I, I actually I want to quote the conclusion section of your article here, because I think it really lays out um, these bigger stakes. And then we can kind of wrap up, I think, by having you, both of you riff on on this and and go on it. But I want to quote from you where you say, 
As a model of public health, wellness capitalism targets the worker in the name of improved national and fiscal health. The expectation is that with the assistance of the employer, workers can better manage their health and well-being, or at least their performance of health and well-being. Instead of the state confronting the market logic of U.S. healthcare and the dominance of the private health insurance industry, or truly addressing the structural factors, including labor conditions that shape health patterns, workers are expected to strive for wellness. Wellness capitalism is not only a model of public health, but a means to privatize the social welfare state and offer a less robust version of what should be social services and public goods. Employers' encroachment into the spheres of public health, coupled with today's data-collecting digital benefits and insufficient privacy regulations, have created circumstances ripe for the further deterioration of worker rights, agency, and power. So could you talk more about, and we can kind of wrap up on this point, uh, about like what this looks like as a model of public health, about like the, 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 the benefits maze as a model for like accessing um, this, this, uh, this, this goal at the end of the maze, right? I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, my thoughts are short. I mean, I think we have to, it's what we've been talking about this whole time is like, what role do we actually want the employer to play in public health? And like, is there a role that doesn't depend on wellness capitalism or that isn't contingent contingent on our boss for providing our, our health care? And like, if we do decide that there is a role for the employer, like, how do we protect the worker or how do we ensure that, you know, data is protected and that it isn't used against them? And as Tamara said, you know, it, it is kind of like a means testing. So what I would say, and, and, you know, I actually want to go back to um, Edward's uh, 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 thing because I thought, and then, can I go back to Edward first and then come back? Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Go where you want to go. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Okay. Um, and so, Edward, I appreciate what you were talking about with Amazon because I think that gets at one of the tensions around kind of the way that some of these employee wellness programs and kind of aspects of them are being implemented is when you're talking about, you know, uh, some of the ways that they're monitoring, like, oh, does this hurt your back or the possible injuries, right, associated with some of the work. One of the things is, as, as you all know, is that, you know, if we think about like OSHA and if we think about workers fighting for kind of environmental protections or for dealing with health hazards and, and health conditions, um, these are really important kind of labor rights. Uh, if we think about, you know, things like chemicals and ventilation and bathroom breaks and, um, you know, the number of work hours and so forth and, and your uh, meal breaks. And one of the things that I think is happening that I would say, you know, I would like to see more research on is the way that these very real concerns about kind of, um, the impact of your job on your physical and mental well-being and the conditions under which you work, um, they're merging with this wellness culture. So when you were saying, Edward, that, you know, there's this kind of monitoring of, you know, and you put this ice pack and, and so forth, it's like these kind of strange remedies that people give about like, okay, here's how you can deal with this. It's like when McDonald's gave out like, oh, you're having a hard time paying your bills. Here's a budgeting tool. Right. And, and this is what we're going to do. Um, and you see this kind of merging of wellness culture practices 
as suggestions for dealing with kind of structural conditions of the job itself that can impact people's health and well-being. So years ago, I remember watching, it was a news story about, and I forget which airport it was, but an air traffic controller, I guess, had, um, I think maybe had fallen asleep or something. And so there had raised all these questions about, you know, the way the shifts were scheduled. And I remember, I forgot who it was. It was somebody who represented management. And they were like, well, you get eight hours from, you know, your between your sh- uh, your shifts. And he's like, that's plenty of time to go home and to drive and, you know, get your rest and, and then to come back ready. And so it was like, that's something that I think, even though I didn't have the vocabulary at the time to describe it, but that's an example of kind of where something like, what are the safety aspects for the workers and for society in terms of like how, you know, work is structured and the conditions of your work are structured, is structured, but, um, or are structured, but it's like, and how does that merge with kind of these wellness mandates um, instead of actually looking at kind of, you know, the environment and the kind of management practices. And so, Edward, I was very interested in what you were saying because I feel like you were giving examples of how Amazon, you know, is collecting all this data, collecting, c- calculating all these things, claiming it's kind of on behalf of like the safety for workers, but it merges with these wellness kind of culture mandates. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you want to talk more about that maybe. You know, part of it, part of it also I'm interested in, you know, like one of the things I think that we talk about sometimes with, you know, the show is the ways in which people might start rolling out some sort of digitization or privatization as a digitization scheme, realize there's more that they can get away with and, uh, and break away in a very weird directions. And Amazon feels like a swirling massive question mark because on the one hand a lot of the dynamics you know you've you know outlined are going on and then there's also the large labor question and the fact that you know it's it's hard to really imagine how they can sustain their workforce and the logistics empire with the practices that they have um and the paltry you know healthcare offerings and, and crumbs that they have and also on the other, like, how how does all of this figure into their, like, attempts at over time in one way or another to build their own bona fide healthcare system and system of healthcare offerings, right? And the degree to which any of these things are talking to each other or they're all siloed off, operating off of whatever market logics are, um, are helping shape them. And I, that's why I was really interested also in this metaphor of the benefits maze and thinking about how the industry, if you know, if you were an alien from Mars and you're coming here and you'd like, why is there a wellness industry? Why is why are there a bunch of firms and why are there a bunch of programs that are being offered to you know give weird paltry and consistent on unproven uh, fixes and solves to medical issues or weird conceptualizations of the problems in the first place. Um, and, and you identify part of it as like, you know, the, the, uh, the realization among a lot of firms that, you know, the digital is, is a, is a real potentially profitable space and that they can make money in a variety of ways, whether it's by taking people's money and uh, taking people's data and collating it in one way or another and selling it, or whether it's by being a vendor that sits in the middle of that process, or whether it's by scraping the top of it, or whether it's by bullshitting VCs and creating infrastructure that they now sit in. Reading this report and, and, and also thinking about what I've seen with how venture capitalists and digital technologies 
totally distort and unhinge incentives for development and innovation in any space, you know, I feel like I come back to the question I've, I've, I've raised a lot of times with Jathan, where it's like sometimes I worry that a lot of developments, you know, is there a way to actually roll them back? You know, is, is it like, are, is, is it the case that maybe as you're talking about the healthcare culture, the wellness culture, and also some of the victories that these people have had in policy and in ideology are just like have permanently affected how people think about healthcare and what they should and shouldn't be able to do and what they should get from. And ev- Oh no, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I was going to say wellness is also like offering more PTO or like actually offering comprehensive healthcare or like childcare or higher wages, you know, but like that's not part of the conversation. But I think this goes back to kind of, I think, um, you know, again, like labor movements and and just what role will labor play um, and labor movements and labor unions specifically in pushing for kind of a strong universal health care system? Because, you know, um, this is an issue of of kind of the benefits and, and the kind of bargaining over benefits. And I've been thinking a lot about like um, Herbert Marcuse and, you know, the whole Marxian phrase, like we have nothing to lose by our chains, but he, you know, Herbert Marcuse was like, actually like kind of middle-class people have been like enticed with, you know, kind of not losing their chains. And he was thinking about kind of some of the enticements to do that as a middle-class person. I've been thinking a lot about that in relationship to benefits and how it becomes this way of like, you know, like I said, sometimes labor unions kind of haggling over benefits, but, you know, also talking about what are the benefits for their specific members and, and, and sometimes kind of being a bit proprietary about that, right? And treating kind of it like a club. And so I think it also becomes this bigger question about, you know, I think there was this stuff for like Medicare for all, and there's a lot of debates about if Medicare for all is even that progressive, right? Compared to, you know what I mean? And so forth. Like, because Medicare has its own kind of political problems, right? So do you really want to have that be the model for everybody, right? Um, but I do think we've kind of lost a little bit of the of the zeal for maybe universal health care as a political goal, um, which is kind of, you know, interesting given that we're in a pandemic. And so everyone's talking about health in a particular way and very much dealing with it. Um, but this is where I think thinking about health and wellness uh, and employee wellness programs beyond the worker is actually really key because part of the issue becomes a lot of the literature and a lot of the critiques, including our work. Um, so, you know, I want to be Maoist, you know, criticism, self-criticism. Okay. And so, you know, but um, it's like, you know, a lot of it focuses on the impact on the worker, right? But I think some of the best labor scholarship thinks about what is the impact, not just on the worker at that specific place or workers in general, but on like society in general, right? This is where a lot of really important work on Amazon is thinking about kind of the Amazonization or Uber and Liftization of everything. And so I think it's about more of us thinking critically about the impact of kind of wellness culture and employee wellness programs beyond the workers themselves. And so what does this mean for how we think about workplace standards regarding kind of environmental hazards and regarding occupational standards, but also and health standards, but also like our critiques of wellness culture? Because if we focus solely on just kind of data extraction from the workers, we're kind of missing some of the bigger picture about that this is actually entrenching benefits culture. Um, and employee, and it's entrenching an employee benefits kind of um, 
uh, zeitgeist among, among workers, right? And so whether it's kind of having more and more bargaining time just spent like, you know, doing the actuarial science to decide if these benefits work or the way it entices you to kind of, you know, think that this is the future of like how we get health, right? Or the way that you, you know, get kind of plugged into the way we just even think about the future of work and employment, because we think about it in terms of like, this is how we get our benefits, right? Like, I think really, there needs to be more critical engagement, I think, in the labor movement about this, about benefits themselves, not just employee wellness. And I think also the employee wellness critiques need to expand beyond just thinking about the impact of these on workers. Um, Because I do think it is a bigger political conversation about what does this mean for the future of how our battles for like universal healthcare, frankly. Yeah, I think that's exactly, exactly right. Like the framing matters so much because wrapped up in the framing is a whole political economy, right? And so when we talk about like benefits, well, that just frames these things as like bonuses, right? And you can like kind of haggle over the bonuses, but it's like healthcare is not a bonus, right? Like, uh, you know, like these things are not bonuses, but you know, vacation time, like all of this is so like that framing, right? The benefits or like that's the wellness capitalism benefit or, or framing, right? Like the, the welfare capitalism framing is that these things are like entitlements, right? And so yeah. that's a very right wing way of framing these things that like, because we hate entitled people. And so why would you feel entitled? You know, you, you have all these entitlements, you know, and mm-hmm. stuff like that's a really toxic way of framing it as well. Or what we were saying before around like framing healthcare as a commodity. It's and it's a commodity that you need to like not lower the cost of, but lower the consumption of that commodity. That's also a really deranged way of framing these things. And so it's like wrapped up in all of these and and we're kind of sitting at the intersection of benefits, entitlements, and healthcare as commodity. Like that's that's the system we're in is like sitting at the perfect Venn diagram of of those framings. And it's like each of those is like a like has a whole political economy, like a deranged political economy wrapped up in them. And so like we we we've just taken three uh, you know, toxic framings and put them in a blender and said, this is the system that we have. And, and, oh, I guess it's the only one that we can have too, by the way. It's, uh, there's not, not, nothing, you know, we're, we're all sitting around holding hands and chanting, nothing can ever be different or better, you know? Um, (laughs) but I mean, like, that's the kind of like that, that's the mindset here. Right. Uh, um, it reminds me of that, of this, like, a viral tweet that gets the rounds where it's like, I just got back from the centrist political rally. Everybody was chanting a better world is not possible. Everything is perfectly fine the way it is. Right. (laughs) And, but I feel like that's, uh, you know, like that's the kind of way that it is because like, and, and the, the, the maze aspect of it too, I wanted to bring in that it's like, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. Like, that the ACA Obamacare was like so full on about like corporate wellness programs and that therefore the corporate wellness programs are this like benefits maze as you frame it because famously the Affordable Care Act was like designed by all of these policy wonks, right? Like the Ezra Kleins and people who were like, you know, when it was, when it was passed and rolled out, I remember people being like, you know, like Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein and these people being like, 
I love going on the ACA healthcare marketplace and choosing if I want the silver plus plus program or the blonde, the bronze, the certified bronze, you know, like all of this nonsense. Right. And it, but it's nonsense that like, and it's what you're saying as well, Tamara, that like, these are like actuarial discussions around benefits or like, as you say, you know, you have, you need uh, you need to, you need, you need this primer to help you navigate all of the healthcare benefit navigators who are helping you navigate the benefits maze, right? So it's like, it's this pyramid scheme of like policy wonks and HR professionals and, you know, actuaries. And so, and, and it, it reminds me as well of like how the tax system is set up in, in the US, which is very much the same. It's a product of the tax accounting lobby, right? That like, it's impossible to do your taxes on your own um, without having, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a like an accounting degree or hiring someone. Whereas like I just did my taxes in Australia and it uh, was an online form. Everything was pre-filled. It took me 20 minutes to just make sure everything was right. And I said, yep, that looks all good to me. Uh, provide a couple extra data points in these specific fields, submit and they say, congratulations, here's your estimated tax return. And then within a week, you get the, uh, the, uh, the tax return deposited into your bank account directly. And it's nine times out of 10, all the, the estimated thing that they said it was going to be, you know, plus or minus, right? And so it's like, it's possible, <laughs> but like, you know, I, all of, all of your faces are extremely telling of like, I t- like you. I, like I go back and I tell people in the U.S. what syst- what these like bureaucratic administrative systems are like other places, and it's like the most mind blowing science fiction they've ever heard in their life, right? Um, but it's because we have like like it goes as well to what you're saying, Tamara. Part of this is about profit making because you are creating all of these like industries of bullshit jobs, right? That all of them are skimming some off the top. So you need multiple layers of HR professionals and and all these startups and so on. But part of it as well is just creating like these intricate baroque systems of power, right? Designed to like shut you out, keep you out, um, you know, extract all of your uh, power and choice and discretion from you um, because it like in order to do anything that should be a basic essential right and service, you have to like engage with an extremely like technocratic, baroque and intricate system um, to do it. And so like, uh, yeah, I mean, all of it is designed to uh, to, to, to not deliver what all of the marketing on these things say that they're delivering. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking, you know, one thing I'm thinking through is, um, because the benefits maze, I think that part of it is it's a maze and it's like bad for the worker and so forth. And, and it's bad for a couple of things, but I've been, one of the things I've been thinking through and, and this is not to say, like, you know, I'm not totally rejecting our primer. I love our primer, Eve. I just want you to know that. But um, so I love our primer. But one of the things, you know, I've been thinking about with just, like, some of the worker surveillance stuff is, like, and a lot of the critiques of, like, employee wellness uh, programs is about, you know, some of these issues that we talked about with the benefits maze about, like, the lack of transparency and, 
um, the privacy and so forth and HIPAA and everything. Right. Um, and, and I've been thinking about, because, you know, there's a way where there's still this kind of use of consumer culture and consumer protections model to talk about the worker. Right. And, and that I know is a debate in some of the kind of labor work is like, okay. I've just been thinking about the focus on kind of privacy, um, worker privacy. And I think there needs to be more work about like what happens to the data and what do employers get to actually see um, if they see anything at all and how does it play out in the company um, as well as like, where does that data actually go? And there's not a lot of studies that actually do that. So I think they all kind of, you know, the more critical scholarship warns about the data being collected, but where does it actually travel and so forth hasn't been uh, well studied, I think. But I've been thinking about like how the focus on privacy still sometimes makes the worker like a consumer. And there's a debate about, you know, what is the model for thinking about these issues of surveillance and data extraction that workers are going through, but also sometimes their their desire for data, right? Um, and their desire for data to be collected for certain things. Um, or for certain policies regarding, you know, monitoring kind of workplace health. And that was something that we talked about with the COVID stuff. But I've also just been thinking critically about like, you know, so what if they do make it uh, transparent that this is what is happening with your data? Like, then what? You know, are they just saying the part out loud? Like, we know, you know what I mean? Like, so then what do we do, right? And so I think that's also an interesting question to me is this idea that, you know, our critiques seem to kind of be like, if these companies were just more transparent about what they do with our data than some, you know, but that actually like we would still have to mobilize around something politically um, to make that more interesting than just them revealing like or saying the quiet part out loud, I think. So that's the stuff I've been thinking about lately. No, I think that's I think that's all right. And and it is good. We should, considering this is a data and society uh, funded primer, we should end on the data point for sure. Um, but no, I think that's right, because you're exactly right. And there's a, we we didn't talk a lot about the the kind of the technological aspect of some of these digital you know of these startups and platforms which your primer goes more in depth into there is frankly just a lot more interesting things around the kind of broader context i think for us to unpack in this discussion but the primer does go into these really important questions around this fact that like that is yet another one of these like complex opaque and baroque systems um at play like another layer of complex opaque of and, and brokenness um is that like the 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 data marketplaces the data collection the data exchange the data sharing like all of this is completely like you know unknown it's it's not captured uh, which is this is really important most people probably do not realize this that like hipaa the health insurance or health information um, privacy protection act that you know um governs all health data um and and it, you know has a lot more strict kind of re legal protections and regulations around health data employers are not covered by that Right. And so like a lot of these wellness programs, a lot of these startups, these third parties, like they are not covered by HIPAA protection. And I think a lot of people probably assume that they are because it makes like their health. It's health data. Why wouldn't it be covered? But it's because it's like 
the regulation is about uh, specific relationships between specific types of people. So like patients and doctors, it's not really about the type of healthcare. It's about the type of relationship that is, that governs the, the, that governs HIPAA. And that's again, unnecessarily uh, restraining and, and, and complex way of governing health information. Right. But like, that's another layer on top of this. There's so much more that we could uh, get into for sure. We just opened up a whole nother can of worms, but I don't want to take up all of your time, all of our time um, doing it. So, you know, I, hopefully we'll have both of you back on um, in the future to talk more about the the work that I know both of you are continuing to do around these types of of, of topics and you know the and so the, it's 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 so rich and it's so important and there's a lot of there's a lot of unknown knowns and a lot of known unknowns and you know and a lot of questions uh that need that need answers for sure um with all of this so with that I think that's as good a place of any of wrapping this up I, of course I will you know point people to Tamara and Eve's um, primer report from Data and Society, the uh, called Wellness Capitalism, Employee Health, the Benefits Maze, and Worker Control. Be a link to that in the episode description. Um, I highly recommend people read this, check it out. Uh, it's a it's a real just kind of like encapsulation of a lot of different dynamics that I think motivate um, the kind of analysis that you know people who listen to Team K are interested in um, and does so in a, in a topic area that deserves to have a lot more attention. So Tamara, Eve, thanks so much for, for coming on. Yeah, um, thank we'll, you guys. we'll also link to your, your Twitters um, for sure. Is there anything else that you would like to direct people's attention to? I'll, I'll start with you, Tamara. Any, any plugs that you want before we end up? I just want to say thank you so much for having us on the show. And I just want to say when I told people that we were going to be on the show, a lot of people are like, oh, and they're big fans of your show. So thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I'm a big fan of this of this report and your work. Um, so I've, I'm very happy to, to talk to both of you. Eve, I've been following your work since the markup. Um, and, you know, and, and, and Tamara, um, we've had conversations. Yeah. We did a panel together also at dating society. Yeah. And I go back, but thank and, you and so much. This was great. And I'm looking forward to my second shirt. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the merch and also the pod. <laughs> well, thank you both. And, and everybody else, um, can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, we've got the, our new book club series, um, on mute compulsion, just a, a fantastic book. We're working our way through that chapter by chapter every other week. Um, so if you want to join along for that discussion, um, subscribe at Patreon. Uh, and, and yeah, you have access to a huge backlog of, of episodes and much more to come. So find us there. And until next time, later. Adios. Adios.
Thank you.